Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, we want to continue our... Apologetic study, week five already, that's hard to believe, and we are in October, and we are moving along. But we want to ask God to help us through this particular topic, which is challenging and cannot stand on its own in the sense that there are so many other things that relate to this that we've covered and some that we'll cover in the future weeks. But let's do what we can to get our arms around this topic tonight and ask God to help us through it. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for how you have endowed us with the ability to think, to reflect, to reason. As imperfect as that is, we want to think carefully tonight and clearly about these issues that are so essential to the biblical worldview, to understand what it means to be a Christian, to believe the assertions of the Bible, to be able to express to other people their need for you and to know that that is verified, not only the central events of the atonement and in Christ's resurrection, but even in the words that we read on the page of scripture, we know that that's all verified because of your miraculous work, your expression of your authority, your dominion and sovereignty over all things. So give us clarity of thought as we work through this, and I pray that you would encourage us and that we would have a sense of understanding, even as it says of the preacher to rightly handle the word of truth. Let us handle these issues well and be able to put a grasp on them, to divide them rightly, to to cut them straight, to think clearly and, and with precision about these issues that need need our attention. So we thank you, God, for this study, and I pray it would be helpful in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to talk a little bit about the biblical claim of the miraculous. That's our topic tonight, the biblical claim of the miraculous. And we can't do this without going back to where we've been in talking about God and the nature of God. So let's understand a few things about the God as he's presented in the Bible, the God of the Bible presented in the Bible, the God who is. Number one, the God, there, there is a God who, here's the assertion of the scripture, that precedes the physical universe. And it couldn't be any more simple than the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The idea that there was a God before the creation of physical matter that existed. That's the way our Bibles introduce us to God, at least in the literary expression of God in Genesis. And so we need to think through what the Bible says, that God is not part and parcel of his universe. We are not pantheists. We don't believe that God is the totality of the created universe. We believe that God is separate from preceding the creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created these things that are external to him. John 1, 3, without him, speaking of the agency of creation in this case, Christ himself, who has all the authority and creative power of God the Father, God the Father chose through his Son to create the world, and without him there was not anything made that was made. And of course, the receptor here, the reader of this, and even the human author, John, is recognizing the physical universe, the things that we see around us, and even the invisible thing, the thrones, dominions, powers, all the things that Paul talks about in the spiritual realm. Everything that was not God was made by God. And as we saw in the description and discussion we had about God and his creation, we recognize that the builder of all things, 
Again, the context, the idea is the things that we see, right? Every house is made by someone and the builder of all things, Hebrews 3, 4, is God. So just to start with the idea, when we talk to people about the miraculous, is we believe that there's a God that is transcendent, we would say. He's not part and parcel of the creation. He is separate from the creation. He precedes the creation and he created everything that is, everything that is not him. There is a God, number two, who we believe because the Bible says it so clearly, he actively upholds creation. There are religious forms of thought that would say that God is not active in creation, that he does not uphold creation, that he's not a part of creation. Uh, You might think of the deists who see God as the great watchmaker who winds everything up in the universe and then steps away from it. And while he is away from it in the sense that he is other in that, in that sense, and we can see statements about God coming down to see what they were building in the Tower of Babel, there's that sense of, of distance only in his separateness from his creation, the transcendence of his creation. We understand that he is actively involved in creation. Nehemiah 9.6, you've made the earth, you made the heavens, you made the stars, you made everything, and you preserve all of them. You keep them going. You sustain them. Hebrews 1.3 Speaking specifically with the second person of the Godhead, he upholds the universe by the word of, the, of, of his power. Christ is much like the agent of creation speaking things into existence. He is also speaking the sustaining of the existing universe. He keeps it under his control, even by his ongoing will, that he wills it to be. Acts 17.25, he gives to all mankind, Paul says, on what we call Mars Hill, the Areopagus, As I often say when we talk about this great passage, the university professors of Athens, the intellectual center of the world at that particular point, he says to them, this God that everyone is trying to worship, uh, or at least some expression of, of what they believe God to be through the idols in Athens, he says there's one God, he's created the world, and he gives, present tense, to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's actively involved in creation. So there is a God who exists prior to creation. There is a God who is actively upholding creation. And number three, he can and he has intervened in creation. And we're starting to get to our logical definition of what the miraculous is. He can, he has that ability, he is separate from creation and he can get involved. He can intervene. As Job 23 in the broadest possible sense, verse 13 says, who can turn God back? What he desires, that he does. And if God wanted to get involved in anything that he makes, he certainly can. And in biblical history, he has. First Chronicles 16, 12, the Bible says, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles. He's stepped into time and space in various places throughout the Bible. We'll look at a few tonight. And the claim is that he has involved himself as the omnipotent, sustained one, the eternal one, can get involved in the temporal, finite creation that he's made. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4, God in doing certain things, and we'll look at this in more detail, in very specific situations for very specific reasons, has borne witness to certain things. In that case, the salvation that he's declared through Christ and the apostles, he attested to it. He bore witness to it by signs and wonders and various miracles. I know we're working toward a definition here and we'll get there. But there's some things we need to know about the fact that God is presupposed in scripture as existing outside of creation, prior to creation, that he's involved in creation. He hasn't walked away from creation. He's aware. He's omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is then at various times involving himself in creation. 
God also has created, we would say, here's setting us up for what the Bible says about the miraculous, has created a natural order. At least that's what we call it. And there's a lot of debate as to how we define that, both philosophically and theologically, but we're saying there's a way that we observe things to happen, and they happen that way. And I put it this way, God has encoded the physical world to work according to a set of habitual rules, a habit of things, the way that things work. And he's created those laws. That's why we can have something called science, which is observing those patterns that God has made. And as it has famously been said, we're just thinking his thoughts after him. We are learning the pattern of God working in his creation as an orderly God who set up a set of rules and carried those out. Very simply, here's one example of many just out of the first chapter of Genesis that God said, let the earth sprout vegetation as though it's a thing. Right? It's almost personified here. Let it sprout vegetation. It's as though now it's at work because he's encoded it with a set of rules and these plants are now going to do something. They're going to sprout. Here's another verb. They're going to yield seed. So they have within them this encoded set of information to do things like fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. So they follow a particular pattern of rules on the earth. And it was so. So God has made a decision to set up the physical universe with encoded data and information that is then going to function according to those rules. And you can go through the whole first chapter and so much more in the early part of the Bible to talk about God expressing that order in the things that he's made. And we can see it all the way down in this horticultural example. You can see it in a zoological example of the animals, all according to their kind. It's orderly. It's according to rules. And God makes his universe work that way, so much so that we can say that the earth sprouts vegetation. More on that in a minute. So God has encoded this natural order to work according to rules. Job 28, I had another passage here. And he gave to the wind its weight, so it's it's substance and what it is. And he's apportioned the waters by measure. And when he had made a decree for rain and a way for lightning of thunder, then he saw and declared it, he established it. So God has set up the functioning of hydration, of photosynthesis, of biological reproduction. These are the things that God has made all the way down to trees bearing fruit and their seed and in them producing a whole nother cycle of crop. All of this according to how God has set it up, even the weather patterns as it refers to in this passage. God, the Bible says, now we got to carefully think this through, says he empowers that. If he's holding all things together by the word of his power, and we're saying that God is not only transcendent, but he's imminent, he's involved, he's involved in what's happening within the rules of nature, as we want to call it nature, this pattern, this observable pattern of rules, then we're saying that the Bible is clear. And I know this is an analogy I'm going to take you to first. First Corinthians chapter three, verses six and seven, just to get to that horticultural example from Genesis chapter one, verse 11, he's talking now about evangelism. And he says, I planted, here's the analogy. He's just showing the parallel here. Apollos watered. He came in and preached and did more. I gave you the gospel. He elaborated and gave you more biblical truth, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, while Genesis 1.11 says the earth sprouts its vegetation, the Bible says that God, at least by way one step removed in this analogy, is giving the growth to the earth to allow this to happen. And as I often say, just in passing from the platform in a sermon, if God were to withdraw his active supervision of the universe... Right? My theology would say, because the scripture reveals this, that it wouldn't function. It would implode. It would, it would not exist. God has to actively will 
Upholding everything by the word of his power. All things in Christ hold together. They consist in Christ, to quote Colossians. So the idea here is that God is the one who's working within the rules of nature to make them function. As he puts it in this parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the seed sprouts and grows. Speaking of the farmer here, he puts the seed in the ground. He knows not how. And the idea here is, even if you were to understand it to the extent that we may understand it today, and we may understand it even better tomorrow in terms of the modern era, we recognize there's a principle at work within that physical universe that is not known. The earth produces, here's what it's saying, at least in the mind of the farmer, by itself. I just plant it, I put it in the ground, I water it, and then it happens. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, and then he goes on to talk about the kingdom. And this is the example of the growth of the kingdom. But the idea that I'm trying to represent both in to the Corinthians and here in Jesus' teaching is that God is at work within the physical world, though there's a set of rules encoded to make it work, and we sit back and say, we know the rules. We know if we drop a, a pin, it's going to hit the ground. And, and, and we may study to figure out how that works. But there's something about the way that God does that as he's actively involved in it that is making it happen. And the example is making things grow. Without God's active involvement, it doesn't take place. Letter C. What we're getting to is the definition of miracles. We're believing that God intervening is God looking at the order of things and how he works through the order of things, the rules that he's encoded into the physical universe, and that he decides to intervene. Now, I like to put it this way. He suspends the natural order. That's the first category. He intervenes by suspending the natural order. For instance, Psalm 19, verses 4 and 5. He set a tent for the sun. This is highly poetic language. I understand that. Right? We could talk about the rotation of the earth, but that's not the point. The point is we see it come up in the morning. At least that's how we would say it. Comes over the horizon. The, 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 the sun does. Speaking of the sun here, we see the canopy, if you will, of the sky. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, it, it runs its course with joy. Now, of course, it doesn't smile. This isn't Teletubbies or, you know, whatever. We're talking about the poetic nature of God's beautiful work in setting up the universe to run the way it does, not without, I hope I've made this clear, his active involvement in making it all happen, but he set it up to do according to those rules. Now, what we're saying is there are times when he takes that law and he decides to, that rule, that habit, and he decides to break it. Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. I'll start with one of the hardest, quote unquote, miracles in the Bible. I suppose save all those related to Christ's redemption, incarnation, and atonement. But Joshua speaks to the Lord. I mean, he's in this battle here. And the sun stands still at Gibeah. He says that. Sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. And there has been no day, he goes on to say in verse 14, like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man. Well, there's been plenty of answers to prayer up until that point, but we're talking about all the people who cried out for the day to stop. I just wish this day would last a whole lot longer. And I'm sure there are plenty of people like I was praying today that the day would last longer. And this day it happened. And God suspended the rules 
of what we would normally see of the sun running its course from one end to the other on a set schedule the way it always does. It has no power in itself. It's all derived power. It has encoded information all the way to the molecular structure of everything that God has created, but he decides at some point, controlling every photon and every lepton and quark of the universe, to say, we're going to stop this thing today. I'm going to allow my creatures to be animated here in the valley and win this war. And he does this thing, and they stand back and say, that was the weirdest day ever. Uh, We've had no day like it before or since. So God has a way that he does things, but there are times when he suspends the order that he's made. We would say that's a very unnatural thing. People say there's a million reasons it would be impossible. Well, that's the whole point. It's impossible for the sun to stand still. It's impossible, you know, and I've heard critics talk about, oh, you'd all fly off the universe. Well, God can do whatever he'd like with what he made. And that's at least the claim. I'm talking about the biblical claim of the miraculous. There's another set of God intervening, another category of God intervening in the things that he's made by what I'm going to call tonight the directing of the natural order. You have directing natural order and you have suspending natural order. James chapter 5, for instance, verses 17 and 18. Don't have to go to passages showing just because you experience it every day. I guess you experience the sun going through the sky every day as well. But it says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. Well, we know what causes rain. They weren't stupid back then. We may know more about meteorology now. But he prays that it doesn't rain. And it's very unusual that it wouldn't rain for three years and six months. But it didn't rain for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave its rain. Heaven, of course, the sky gave its rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, there have been plenty of famines in places where it hasn't rained for years. But he prays, it stops, he prays again, and it happens. We assume by all the rules of meteorology and hydrology, it all works the way that it normally works. It just works here by a direction, just like in Joshua's day, of a response to a prayer. The direction of natural order. So we need to think in those categories. The suspending of the natural order and the directing of the natural order, all of these are considered God's intervention. You could say, as I like to say, God is intervening in every moment of every day in everything. That's God's sovereignty, his eminent involvement in all that there is, being actively part of his creation. But when he chooses to do things to intervene, we'll call it that, There's an intervention sometimes that we would put in the category of suspending and sometimes directing. So let's make some comparisons. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Joseph, son of David, God says to him through the angel, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's just one way in human reproduction that people conceive children, and this isn't it. So we've got a need for a Y chromosome, and it takes place as I preached through that one sermon, which was unique for me in years and years of preaching on the virgin birth, which I would have you listen to that if you haven't, to think through all that's involved in Christ being virgin born. But that's the claim of scripture and usually the first miracle to be tossed by the liberalized church as you start taking the slide away from the supernatural ability of God. And it was good for me to preach on that, to think through that carefully. But I know that when we think about natural birth, we would say there's a natural order of things. This is not the natural order of things. This is a complete suspension of the natural order of things. Luke chapter 1 verse 13, there's another birth here, another announcement from God via an angel that speaks to Zechariah the priest. And he says the same basic thing, don't be afraid. In this case, there's a lot of reason for being afraid as he's trying to burn incense there in the temple in Jerusalem. And this angel appears, says, your prayers have been heard. Said before that his wife was barren. That was the translation of the word in Luke chapter one. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son 
and you shall call his name John. So he goes home. They conceive a child. They name him John. Well, there's some doubting and drama involved, as you might remember. He doesn't believe he's mute for a while until he names John by writing it on a tablet. But you have two births that you would say God is involved in. God is involved, not in the first case, because of an answer to prayer, not at least the prayer of Mary, but God is answering the prayers of his people by bringing redemption into Israel through the lineage of David. And so God intervenes to do what had been the hope of the ages, the Simeon said. That was the great consolation of Israel they were waiting for. And Zechariah had been praying for a child, and God said, I have a plan for that child. Well, your wife is infertile, and she's advanced in years, is the way it's translated in in Luke chapter 1, and yet she has a child. She has a child by having an X and a Y chromosome, provided having a child born, you have natural means, but it's the direction of means, means that we're not directing this particular gamut from him to her. All right, more. Acts chapter 12. The angel of the Lord stood next to Peter, and the light was shown. Here's some jailbreaks. The chains fell off his hands. Interesting way to say it. I guess we could figure out a couple ways to interpret that. He said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So an angel is talking to you. That is a supernatural event. That's not the natural order of things. Natural orders are suspended here, and chains fall off the arms. There's light shown. And even the way it's presented out of nowhere, it seems like it's not a lamp that was lit. There wasn't a torch that was ignited. He comes to an iron gate leading to the city. He'd been falsely imprisoned, of course, for preaching Christ. It opened for them on its own accord. That doesn't happen. If it was the wind blowing it open, you could have talked about the means by which it happened. But it says on its own. That doesn't happen on its own. It needs something to move it. There needs to be a mover, a cause. Well, in this case, there was no human cause. There was no earthly cause. There was no natural cause. And they went out. So Peter gets out of jail, and he does so by means of God suspending the natural order. Not many chapters later, Paul is imprisoned in Philippi. And about midnight, you need light around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open. That happens. Happens when there's a big earthquake, certainly on the hinges of an ancient basement jail in Philippi. And the doors were open. We have the means by which it took place. That was an earthquake. We know how that works. Slip fault, thrust fault, plate tectonics. We have geologic reasons for the earth to move. But it happened to happen at a time, by the way, when the church was praying for Paul and Silas and Everyone's bonds were unfastened, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and they trembled with fear. Well, you needed lights. You had light over there in chapter 12, and that happened miraculously, apparently. It seems that's the inference, at least, in verse 7. And here you have no lights, natural source of light. You got to turn on a lamp. You got an earthquake to shake the foundations loose. The doors fly open. You have the almost destruction of this jail because of the natural means of an earthquake. What's unnatural about that is it's God's answer to prayer, it is God's intervention in time and space, but it's done through the natural order. It's done through the direction of the natural order. Old Testament fighting, 2 Kings chapter 19. God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, there's another way to put it. New Testament writers like that too. Just look, look. I mean, it's like, look, this, this shouldn't happen. There were all these dead bodies. How do you kill 185,000 people? Well, they need to die of some natural way. And by natural, I don't mean without the intervention of an iron sword, 
that could be a natural way within at least the context and definitions of what I'm talking about. That's one way to kill someone. But all of this is taking place because of, quote unquote, the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord is not a physical being, but apparently somehow the angel of the Lord is going around and he is striking down the 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. God is suspending natural law to make this happen. First Samuel chapter 14, verses 12 and 14, Jonathan and his armor bearer are out there. And Jonathan says basically what God said of himself over there in second Kings chapter 19. And that is, we're going to win this. We're going to go and take our enemies here. Come up after me, he says to his armor bearer, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And they fell, the enemies did, before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men, as it were, a half a furlough's length in an acre of land. So this is a very unlikely victory by the underdog actually going out and taking a sword in their hand. The armor bearers carrying armor. Armor is something you fight with. You don't fight with angels. You don't kill people physically with spiritual beings. At least that's not the norm. That's not the natural order of things. It's hard to do an autopsy on that. But here you can do an autopsy on these dead enemies of Israel by looking at how they died. And they died when the forearm muscles grabbed a sword and thrust it through. And they did it in a way that was against the odds, but it was still credited to God. As he said, God has given them into our hands. So the suspending and the directing, these are two different things. And yet they all fall into the category of what we're talking about here. So S-T-N-O, the suspending the natural order, and and D-T-N-O, the directing of natural order. You've heard me preach on this before, which is a very long time ago now. I talked about God things, which is the way to talk about the intervention of God. I talked about GT1s, the God thing, the intervention of God of the first category. This is more descriptive. The suspending of natural law is the first category, the first order miracles, if you will. And then you have the directing working within natural law, but getting it done on the time frame that clearly points to God intervening. How did God intervene within natural law or outside of natural law? Did he intervene within the natural order or did he suspend the natural order? Well, if you go through the scripture and you count these up, the pre-Mosaic period, and by that I mean before 1440 BC, 1450 BC, you've got nine examples if you count creation as one. And I know there was a series of them because God was trying to give us a pattern of work and rest for six days. So God does a series of miraculous events that don't follow any of the rules of the natural order. And you got nine pre-Mosaic suspensions of the natural order. You've got eight described in the first chapters of Genesis where you have the directing of the natural order. Now, this is by my count going through the scripture and looking at each instance that I would say is a clear intervention of God into the affairs of human beings. Nine of them suspended natural law. Eight of them directed the natural order. During the age of Moses and Joshua, one of them we just read, there's no other way to look at it when the sun stops, which it's not supposed to. How did that work? Did the earth stop spinning? Did the sky? I mean, how did this work? However it worked, it's not the natural order of things. So that's certainly one of the 10, but you only have 10 suspensions of natural law in the period of Moses and Joshua. And you have several directing of natural law. And though you would say this is God's intervention, when Moses decides to call one of the plagues down on Israel because he's a spokesperson of God and it comes at his command and you have frogs jumping all over Egypt and the multiplication of frogs, which you can have exponentially at a rapid, rapid rate, whatever it might be during the period of Joshua and Moses, you've got 33 of these. So 43 total 
of things in Scripture, as I read through the section of Moses and Joshua, you've got 43 examples of God doing what we might say is an intervention, a, a, a miraculous event. During the age of Elijah and Elisha, this is the classical period of the prophets. Many of the prophets are going to speak during this period. They have the school of the prophets, and they end up, many of them writing what we have today as the prophets. You've got many suspensions of natural laws comparison to the age of Moses and Joshua. But in that short period of time, you've got about 21 suspensions of, of natural order and 45 the direction of natural order. And you can see some of these in, you can think of them like in Elisha's life. There was plenty of them in Elisha's life. You've got the resurrection of the dead and there's only a handful of those in scripture. And they're all going to end up in the left-hand column, but you've got less than 10 of those in the entirety of scripture, including Jesus. But in this case, you've got several. If you count them, your count may be a little different. The age of Jesus and the apostles. You've got 46 in the age of Jesus and the apostles, and most of them are attributed to Christ. Now, this comes with an asterisk on it because there's a couple statements in Scripture, both in John and in Acts, that says Jesus did more miracles, and he went into a town and did signs and wonders, and we don't have those chronicled, but the ones that are chronicled, 46 chronicled in the Gospels, and we've got another statement in Acts about doing miracles in the plural, and we don't know what those were. We don't know what category they fall into, so it could be that this is multiplied in terms of the reality, but what is described in Scripture and recorded in Scripture at my count, 86. Directing natural law, a lot less. I don't know why. I can't explain it. I can guess at it. But the reality is God is doing things in such a dramatic way as he comes on the scene, Jesus does, to prove his credentials. And out of that, of course, the writing of the New Testament comes. More on that later. Let's think about how people think through miracles in our country. Now, you might go be a missionary somewhere, and we'd have to come up with some different statistics and some surveys to prepare you. But you're going to go talk to your waiter. You're going to talk to your neighbor. You're going to talk to your coworker. You're going to talk to your friend at the gym, whatever it might be. And I just want to prepare you for what they think about the miraculous. And much like the existence of God, the people that are adamant against these things get a lot more press and airtime than the person you're going to meet who doesn't have the same views. So I'm basing this latest survey that I had a chance to get my hands on. This is a 2015 Barna research survey, and I just want to work through some stats that may help you and prepare you for what we're going to face. So I'm looking now at the stat, believing the biblical miracles as they're described. About to give you a number here. What percentage of Americans believe the biblical miracles? Just asking that question. There's a bunch of miracles in the Bible. Now, if they were real good students of the Bible, they might say, well, there's less than a hundred suspensions of natural law. One of them included the sun standing still in Joshua's day. One of them included Lazarus rising from the dead after four days. One of them included Jesus turning water into wine. Do you believe those miracles happened as they're described in the Bible? What do you think the percentage is of Americans answering that question? What do you think? You got a number? You bold enough to tell the person next to you? What do you think that's going to be? 51%. 51% of Americans surveyed, Barna's a pretty serious surveying organization. Is that higher or lower than you thought? Well, do more evangelism because you'll see. I mean, I remember going to school and preparing and doing all this stuff and studying apologetics and you end up talking to people and most of them believe in God and over half of them still believe in America, in our culture, in the miraculous events. Now you spend your time on college campuses like I started out in my ministry, that number goes down. Right? Certainly, you go to university, you go to college, all of a sudden now you're taught to think a little differently and that number is going to drop. And even this survey has some of that breakdown, but I'm not getting into all the details of demographics. A little bit I will. What's the percentage of Americans that believe that miracles cannot happen? They think there's just, there's just, it's impossible. There's no such thing as miracles and they cannot take place. Think now. 
You got 51% that say, I believe that the miracles in the Bible, the way they're described, they happen. Yeah, I believe those. At least they would say they believe them. They don't live like they believe them, but they say they believe them. What percentage do you think? Pick a number in your brain. What do you think? Got it? You got that number? 15%. Now you get a lot of stuff on the Discovery Channel. You get a lot of things that you'll hear on the radio. You get a lot of stuff out there that you're going to read in the magazines. But only 15% of Americans right now in a 2015 survey, serious survey, Only 15% say it can't happen. Believe that miracles are possible. That's a broad statement. I believe that miracles are possible. You might have someone that say, well, I don't believe that the miracles as described in the Bible happen the way they are described in the Bible. I don't believe the sun stood still. I don't believe that Lazarus raised from the dead. But then you ask them, do you believe that they could happen? Got a number in your head? 67%. So 67% say miracles could happen. 51% say, well, I believe the miracles as described in the Bible happen the way they said. 15% say, I don't think it'll happen at all. Just for the sake of breaking this down a little further. Miracles can happen. 73% of boomers, which now I guess is all us old people. If you're younger than boomers, 61%, the numbers go down. I thought this was interesting in the survey. Republicans, 74%. Democrats, it ain't going to be higher, 61%. And I could go on and on with this survey, but it just represents, I think, a recent swath of what we're dealing with in America today. Helpful? All right, turn your paper over and let's talk about the 49%. The logic of the 49%. They don't believe Bible miracles. 51% do. At least they'll say they do. 41% are going to tell you, I don't believe it. Ask your waiter, your waitress, hey, do you believe the miracles in the Bible happen the way they're described? Half of them are going to say, 49% are going to say no. So let's talk about that. Well, we've already really talked about that, at least in part. We're going to get to miracles as a general concept in a second. But first, we've got to get back to something we dealt with already, and that is, they're going to say what we have in your Bible was not what was originally even written. They believe in an evolving Bible. The Bible has evolved. These are stories, and the stories got, were elaborated, and they continued to grow. And it was so-and-so was going to be late, but they hurried and caught every green light and they got to practice on time. And then it was like, well, they drove 100 miles an hour and there wasn't a car on the road. And then it was, they actually flew and then they levitated and then they teleported. And so that story just kept growing. And so now we have the story of Lazarus being dead in the grave and Lord, he stinketh, you know, his sister says, when in reality it was just, he was really sick. But that's how the story grew because the Bible just kind of was evolving. The stories were evolving, whether through oral tradition or through it just continuing to evolve and the story was written down and then it was kind of spun into a bigger tale and so off it went. We dealt with this two weeks ago, did we not? This has to be clearly understood in the minds of every person that's going to tell you, I don't believe the Bible miracles because whatever really was written down initially, it turned into something else. Whatever was originally said, it evolved into something else. And the story kept getting, I mean, the fish kept getting bigger that we caught. And then, then there was money in the mouth of the fish and that's how they paid their temple tax. Kind of a funny Bible joke there. Well, just to summarize where we've been, we don't have any time for the Bible to evolve. You understand? We, we just don't. We have fragmentary evidence of biblical manuscripts matching with precision what we have in your Bibles today with such a small gap, we don't have time for the story to spin. We have gospels that are written in the first century and we have manuscripts going to the early second century and some fragmentary documents being argued at least, at least in scholarly circles, into the first century. But unchallenged into the early second century. So we don't have time for a lot of things to evolve. I mean, you got a couple decades, but I mean, I just want you to think 
you think about three or four decades, go back three or four decades in your own mind from today. This is not a lot of time for a story to be spun. And again, they'll say this as you're standing there talking to them at the mall or wherever. If There are no malls anymore. I guess there's a couple left. When you're there in the restaurant, they'll say, well, the Bible's been translated so many times. And again, that's just another way to talk about an evolving Bible. Well, there's been no loss of the message in multiple translations. Why? Because there's only one translation of the Bible. And by that, I mean every Bible's only been translated once, whether it's a good Spanish Bible, a good Arabic Bible, a good English Bible. It's going from the original manuscripts. The original manuscripts are attested to in ancient fragmentary documents to the first and certainly the second century, the complete manuscripts that we have of every word we can reconstruct at all prior to Constantine in the fourth century. So we have no space, no time, for an evolving message. We believe that what we have on good evidence, we believe what we have is what they actually wrote. So Lazarus being in the grave for four days, that's what was that was actually written. And I say that because that's the most miraculously rich part of the Bible. You notice it's not, oh, all those superstitious people in the Old Testament, and then they got more, you know, Hellenistic and Roman influence, and they became more intellectual, and finally Athens was kind of catching on, and so the New Testament has a lot less. The New Testament has more. So we, we don't have an evolving Bible. The other thing is it's an agenda-driven collection. This, there's, some, there's some agenda here. And while there certainly is a God agenda in the Bible, the human agenda theory just doesn't work. And we've touched on this a bit as we talked about the Bible being God's word. And we looked at it from different angles, certainly as it relates to God's evidence and his fingerprints all over the Bible. But the Old Testament was collected in real time. And by that, I mean, we have stories in the scripture, historical accounts of the Bible being read, the Bible being collected, the Bible being kept in the tabernacle, the Bible being kept in the temple, of course, as the collection of Old Testament books grew. And they weren't sorted out and thrown out in terms of at least the story we looked at in some detail, I suppose, in the New Testament that Constantine took a bunch of earlier gospels and threw them out. I saw a debate just today between a guy, the president of the Skeptics Magazine or whatever it's called, I think it's called Skeptics Magazine, trying to debate a guy from Aberdeen on Miraculous. And he says what everyone says, and that is, oh, you know what? There was a bunch of gospels and those were thrown out and these ones were the ones that were kept. Nonsense. I mean, here's a guy who claims to be smart. He claims to be a, and now he is smart. I'm not saying he's not smart. I don't mean to talk down to the guy. He's a smart guy. But his Sunday school understanding of New Testament manuscripts and the canonicity of scripture is not enough to convince me as I sit there to say, oh yeah, you're right. We had all these stories of Christ and someone came along in whatever century you think they did and sorted them all out and gave us these miraculous stories of Jesus. And we talked about that and taking the one example of the claim from Dan Brown that just caught on like wildfire. And we dealt with that in being able to reassemble the entirety of a divine miracle working Jesus prior to the fourth century, not only in the manuscript evidence, but in the preaching evidence of all the anti-Nicene fathers, all those that preceded the council of Nicaea in the early fourth century. So we don't have a bunch of rejected gospels that you just heard today, them debating as to why we have a miraculous Jesus, because there might have been some early ones, and he admits that. He says, well, I know the gospel started to be written in the middle of the first century. Now, he conceded that point because he knows enough, and he debates enough to know that. But then to say, well, yeah, they kind of sorted out those other gospels. The logic of the 49, don't believe in miracles. They say, well, you can't trust the historical claims of the Bible. I'm talking about the Bible now. Can't trust them. And we dealt with this as well. We said, listen, when they say it's not meant to be taken as true truth, to use that phrase that we've gotten a lot of mileage out of from Francis Schaeber, but that adjective in front of means we, we're not trying to present this as real history. 
And we looked at this in more detail, but let me just remind you that all of it is presented as factual history. It makes the the, the defensive case ahead of time saying, we're not following cleverly devised myths here. We're not chasing fables. It's presented with the miraculous being miraculous. It's not presented as Zeus and, and the phoenix and the ashes and the child of Orion. It's not like the gods are coming down and playing with human beings and they're talking about it like this is normal. It's not a fictitious story of the supernatural. When a miracle takes place in the Bible, like the one, and I didn't even make this connection in my mind when I put it down, but when Joshua and the sun stand still, what do they say? They say, whoa, never has there been a day like that. Never was there before and never was there one after. I mean, they're saying the miracle is the miracle, which is it's unique. That doesn't happen. That stuff just doesn't happen. That's the way scripture presents itself. It's presented as a miraculous being miraculous, like the way I said that. They'll say, well, what you really need, if you're going to take any of those claims, you need collaboration. That's what you need. If you're going to talk about Jesus feeding 5,000, what you're really going to need is collaboration. Where's the other history? And I hear this all the time. I hear this from college students in the lobby of our own church. They give me right my hand. Well, here, I'm not really a Christian, but I just, you know, where can I go to read about this stuff? Now, are there some extra biblical historians that talk about Jesus? Yes, we got a handful. And you can get those. I think I put Josh McDowell's, um, the easiest, most accessible collection of those quotes, probably going to be in that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the new one that Sean revised. The, the old one had them as well. But yes, we have some extra biblical information. But I am going to say, why do you, why do you cast out the evidence of scripture itself? You cast out the evidence of scripture itself because it's claiming the miraculous. Your prejudice against the scripture is saying, I don't want the scripture to tell me that. And if I say, well, not only does Matthew say this, Luke says it as well. Well, yeah, but those are both saying the miraculous took place. You want collaboration with the miraculous, right? Yeah, but I don't want another thing that says it was a miracle because then then I obviously can't believe that because it's a story about miracles. But it's not. That's the point. The Bible is presenting itself as, as factual history and when there's a miracle, it says, wow, man, Mike Fabar's paraphrase, wow, man, there's a miracle there. And then you're saying you want collaboration. I'm saying, great, you have it, but you have it within scripture. And then you'll say, you'll get back to, well, these were selected documents. You want to talk about canonization? We did a whole series, uh, well, I think it was at least one 90-minute lecture on canonization in the um, bibliology series on Compass Night forget what we called it. Where'd the Bible come from or something like that? All right. Let's talk about the logic of the 15%. Remember the 15% that can't happen. And I, I should have put that next to it. I don't know why I didn't. I'm sorry. Miracles are not possible. You just need to put that in the parentheses. Miracles are not possible. But here's the logic of the 15%. And again, you can gear up for the 15%, but guess what? You're probably only going to use it about 15% of the time, right? But most people are already going to say, hey, I believe in miracles. And maybe if you hang out in college campuses, you'll have to use it more. But even as my son says, who's out there on the front lines on the college campuses doing apologetics and and evangelism, it's it's almost like that swung the other way now. I mean, like, yeah, well, whatever, sure, I, I guess, whatever, whatever happened. There's a lot of whatever's going on on college campuses today, it seems. In the olden days, at least when I was doing college ministry, it was, right, a higher level of people saying, I don't believe it's possible. But what do they say? Here's the claim. They say the natural order of things, which you're saying is the definition of a miracle, that they're either suspended or directed, can't happen. Can't be directed and it can't be suspended. And I'm saying, but they say it has. Okay, here's my response. Again, here's what I'm trying to teach. I'm not trying to teach you 
quantum mechanics or philosophy. I'm trying to give you some simple tools to respond to people who are saying things like, I don't think miracles can happen. And by that, I mean, I don't believe that the natural order can be suspended and I don't believe the natural order can be directed. And I'm saying, well, let's start with that claim that you don't think it can ever be altered. And I'm saying, well, you say it has been. And here's the, here's the issue. The problem of existence, as I put before and others have put it before me, it's the problem of having something existing rather than nothing existing. We have a problem with that because we know what exists is temporal. We understand that. There's no one that's going to deny that. Not anymore. They used to believe in what's called the steady state theory or uniformitarianism, which meant that existence is eternal. Well, we know we're not eternal because no one's ever lived forever on this planet, but we believe that the stuff of the universe is eternal, but now no one's going to say that. So we have a problem of being, of existing. We have a problem of of something being here. And that problem of existence is, is huge. It's a big problem. So today, at least the common theory today, of course, is 13.7 billion years ago, this thing all got started. And what I often like to point out when the theories of the origins of the universe are bandied about as they are, and people want to say very emphatically, here's what happened, you're going to have to deal with what every single, every single theorist astronomical theorists, every, every biological theorist, everyone gets down to talking about the milliseconds, the, the milli, I mean, just a milli, milli, milliseconds after the singularity explodes or expands. And that's not even a technical word because you can't really use that in the common definition of the word explode. But when you have the quote unquote big bang, which was a dismissive term initially that is caught on, but you, you've got the problem of what happened. And everyone's going to talk about this in the discipline of speaking of the origins of the universe. And you're always going to get down to some statement that's going to sound like this. And I think I pulled this one right off of of the great left-leaning Wikipedia. And you can find this in almost any description of how this all got started in those milliseconds of an expanding universe that's expanding faster than the speed of light. Which, by the way, listen to that statement that I just made. That the universe from the singularity is expanding faster than the speed of light. The first thing you ought to do as any high school student is raise your hand and say, I thought nothing could go faster than the speed of light. And what happens when it does? Well, I don't know, but we assume that it does. And you're going to get around to this just by asking that question. You're going to have this emphatic statement made. Other laws of physics existed at the start of the Big Bang, which created the conditions for matter to occur. Now, you got that in one form or another in every hypothesis about how the universe got started. So we have a problem of existence. And the problem of existence is you're saying natural order does not alter. It can't, it can't be suspended and it can't be directed. There's no God outside tinkering with the universe. And then you say, how did we get here? Because we exist... And they say, well, we figured this out, Redshift and Hubble, and we have all this about the collider over there in Europe. And so we've kind of figured this out now, and it's called the Big Bang. And I'm sorry you're such a primitive Christian and you think that we got here in some other way, but there was a thing called the Big Bang. And so we know this, that everything got to be here through the Big Bang. Don't you know that? Everyone knows that. Have you not watched TV? Everyone knows that. And my question is, when it comes to the problem of existence, is what exists, we know, is temporal. And if what exists is temporal, we want to know how we got here to start with. There had to be something, and so here's the something. It's called the Big Bang. How did the conditions start? Even if I'm going to accept everything about your theory of cosmology, how did it start? Well, it started by a set of rules that we don't have that don't play according to the rules. There's a a book. Man, I should have put this on the screen. 
And it's got the word presuppositional in the title, so a lot of people just don't even touch it because of that. And I don't even know if it's a popularly published book, but it talks about the evolving, and I, 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 I shouldn't even start this sentence, but I think it's Evolution Evolves could be the title. You'll look it up for me real quick. I just, I like the book only because it says exactly really what everyone has to deal with. And that is that you cannot take any snapshot of the origins of the universe from a non supernatural perspective. We would call it a naturalistic perspective. You can't have that without evolving your story. And I don't mean it evolved through time from Darwin to modern physicists. I'm not saying that. Of course it has. Evolution evolves. The theory of evolution evolves. But no, we're talking about the fact of how this works evolves, which means the rules change. And if you're going to change the rules, you're going to get back to when all of this started and talk about a set of rules that don't play by the rules. And all I'm saying is, You've just altered what you say is an unalterable reality. And I didn't want to get into all the stuff I normally do in philosophy about David Hume, Scottish philosopher, 17th century, who in his inquiries book on his chapter on, on miracles gives his philosophical argument. But the premise of the argument that has, it was rewarmed in his day and it continues to be quoted by every atheist I hear online. And, and that is one of the, the premise is that the laws of the universe, the order of the universe does not alter. And all I want to say, and all I'm trying to say is, you claim it has been altered, that it does alter. At least it altered at the beginning, and no one's going to concede that. And so they're going to say, well, it had to alter because we're here. And I'm going, exactly, that's my point. You have the problem of existence. Why is there something rather than nothing? And we've got the problem of how that got here. And if you're going to say, well, we'll figure that out, you're still going to have to have, I don't see any way around the fact that there are no rules other than rules that you're going to say don't play by the rules. So at least that opens a door to saying, well, let's just think about this. I guess the natural order, can't, you can't say it cannot alter. It did alter. And I'm saying it still does. Now we may feel like we're going to be more philosophical now, and I'm sorry about that, but a little bit of thought, even from your next door neighbor, is going to at least get you to think, okay, the natural order does alter. And I'll call the first one the problem of existence. I'll call this one the problem of life. We have a problem of, called life, which transcends the natural order, if you think about it. I dealt with this a couple years ago on Easter weekend. But I want you to think about the problem of life. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be a bad exercise. I think it's like the word culture. We use the word life all the time, and it's like, well, of course we know what that means. Do you know what that means? Think about it for a second. What in the world is life? Well, you know it when you see it. Well, you're right, but what is it? You've got a problem. To talk about a natural order that does not alter, every time we make the distinction between life and non-life, we've got the problem that is laid out for us with the proposed solution in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that is the second recapitulation of the story in Revelation 2. It expands upon it. gets very clear. Instead of just saying God made man in his own image, he says here now, here's the means by which he created human beings. God formed the man of the dust of the ground. Okay, I get that, at least looking back on it now, in a world of temporal matter, I understand temporal matter, at least how it works. Here's the part I don't understand. And here's the part we still don't understand in the day of iPhones and iPads. We don't understand this. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That we can't figure out. We don't know what that means. That's Genesis 2-7. And we're saying, oh, I know life when I see it. There's a living creature right there. You're right, there's a living creature right there. But what is that? How does that work? Because all the same chemicals. I know it immediately starts to degenerate and change and decompose at the moment of death. But all the same cells in a dead frog are there in the living frog. But there's a difference between the living frog and the dead frog. There's a big difference between them. And you start reading about this, you start to recognize we don't quite know what we're talking about when we're talking about living and dead. 
We can only describe things like temperature regulation, like reproduction, like cell generation, but we can't explain that. And all I'm saying is, if you're saying that natural order does not alter, natural order alters every time there's life as compared to death. And you could put it that way. The problem of life is also the problem of death. You've got a problem there. When the difference between A body and B body and one A body is alive and B body is dead, you've got a real issue of trying to explain the difference. You've got a plant in the ground. It's got living cells in it. You've got photosynthesis. You've got a baby that's been born. That baby is going to live and that baby is going to, all things considered in normal course of life, is going to die. The tree that was alive is going to be dead. You can see the cells under a microscope in either one of those things and recognize there's evidence of what used to be life, but there's not life now. Whatever life is, it's not there. And to think philosophically about it, you've got to recognize there's a distinction and that distinction cannot be explained or at least there's not a a natural connection. And I I hate to use the word. We cannot see the natural order of things bringing definition to this. It's been one of the major problems with the modern militant atheists today. Dennett was the one who worked so hard to try and explain it all. And a lot of it, a lot of his explanation, by the way, Dennett, one of the four horsemen of the new atheists, basically gets down to, in many ways, talking about this being illusionary. We start to sound like Mary Baker Eddy in Christian science. It's like it doesn't exist. We'll tell Descartes that, right? Even in the greatest era of skepticism, the philosophers would say, I think, therefore I am. Well, there's something about that in terms of a reflective consciousness, which as a matter of fact, what I said next, the problem of life is the problem of death, which really is another problem that's related, and that is the problem of consciousness. What is consciousness? That's the problem. And it's something that within the natural order, you've got to say there's something altering natural order. There's something at least invading natural order with life. And all throughout scripture, you have that. God breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life. He becomes a living being. God gives, as Paul says to Acts 17, man, life and breath and everything else. There's something about that. And in a day where you don't kill your lunch anymore, you go and buy it at a restaurant and where we take death usually and sweep it in the corner of society and we don't walk past graveyards to come into church anymore. We have a society that's so sanitized from the distinction between life and death and we go around fancifully thinking that life is all there is. Well, life is a miracle. You spend time, remember going to, to, to the biggest funeral operation in the country and walking through the embalming room and, de- and seeing all of the bodies stacked up in the racks waiting to be embalmed. And some that were going to be sent off to, I mean, they were in refrigerators and storage that I went by to go to be cremated, as they call it, to be burned and pulverized. I came out of that day and remember walking back to the parking lot, getting on the freeway, getting off the freeway and going to a meal and thinking, this is so weird that I'm seeing all these bodies walking around in this restaurant. The reality of life and death is such a bizarre reality that for you to say the natural order cannot be altered every time life exists within the natural order it's being altered and that, and that that's just a phenomenon that has to get us past thinking about some encased closed system consciousness itself lets me understand there's no closed system yeah daniel dennett i was talking about at tufts university i mean he's one of the most outspoken militant atheists of our day along with Dawkins and the rest. I just, I wrote down a quote. He finds the existence of consciousness such an intolerable affront to what they believe should be, talk about this existential nihilism, should be a meaningless universe of matter and the void that they declare to be it, that they declare it to be an illusion. Yeah, they either deny that it exists or they argue that it cannot be meaningfully studied. And again, I'm not claiming the God of the gaps, which is what 
I'm often accused of. And I think that's just a, a well-worn and, and misappropriation of what Christians are saying. And you can go back. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well. No one believes, no, no thinking Christian believes that we're just saying what you can't explain by science, that's God. No one is, no one's saying that. No one's ever said that who's a thinking Christian. Even a thinking Jewish rabbi would never say that. Hey, if we don't understand lightning, it must, it must be God. No, we believe lightning is God. We totally believe that. We believe he weighed out the wind. He made channels for the lightning. He created the entire system. And that's the point. We have a problem of existence. We have the problem of life. We have the problem of death. We have the problem of consciousness, all of which brings us back to that problem of the 15% that say this is an impossibility. And they say it's an impossibility because they say it doesn't alter. And all I'm saying about it doesn't alter, and this is reflexive of David Hume's argument, is because all the reports of them are false. All reports of miracles are false. As I heard as latest today by the atheists arguing against the miraculous. And they're more than atheists. They're, I mean, some of them are agnostics, self-proclaimed agnostics, but they're naturalists. They believe that everything that happens can be explained and is a part of a natural order. There's no unnatural, supernatural, supranatural phenomenon. There's not. It's all, it's all atoms. It's all stuff. And they say, well, there's anything tinkering with the universe that's just a phenomenon of stuff and it's not really god and if you say there's something so phenomenal that it really does suspend natural law well then we're going to say that's false and all c.s lewis did a good job of doing in his book miracles which by the way is a great book you need to read it slowly perhaps though he's not trying to be dense or obtuse but in his book miracles it's a good discussion of just thinking about nature and what a miracle is and what it even means to claim something miraculous not being this is not a stupid claim one of the things he says in response to david hume in that book is you only know that every report of the miraculous is false if you presuppose that they can't happen and 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 i understand that i understand what you're saying if every time you drop a pin, it hits the floor, if it doesn't hit the floor, if you said it doesn't hit the floor, then I'm going to say, well, that's not true. It has to hit the floor because that's the rule. And here's the theist who comes in, the supernaturalist comes in. Well, there is something else that could come in and prevent that. No, no, no. Can't prevent it because we're in a closed system here. There's no hand to stop the pin from touching the floor. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, of course. We would say there is. Well, you know, it's one of the laws of nature. Well, I understand that. But there's another element. There's another will. There's another agent. And what we're saying is there is another agent. There's another agent. Just like you say there's some other agent and set of rules that created the universe or rules that existed for which the universe to evolve from. We're saying there is a God. And that God we believe is reasonable to believe in, to, to assert. And then we're saying that God can intervene into his creation. And you're saying, well, no, he can't because he doesn't exist because... It doesn't happen. How do you know it doesn't happen? Because every report is false. How do you know reports are false? Because it can't happen. That is the argument of the modern naturalist. I mean, you're only going to run into 15, 20, maybe 25%, depending on where you hang out, that are going to assert that. But they will assert that. I'm just saying conclusions about the miraculous need to be based on facts. Facts have to be reported. And that's all I'm trying to say, is that in the history of the world, we need to look at assertions of facts And that can't be done by looking at what is repeatable in a laboratory. It has to be based on what has happened in history. And what has happened in history, it seems to me, a very reasonable thing to say there's existence and life, there's consciousness and there's death. Those things, to me, make miracles at least possible. There's a feasibility to it. Because if I'm going to claim a set of physical rules, and that's to concede a lot I'm not willing to concede tonight about the Big Bang or 13.7 billion years, but I am going to say, even if I'm going to go with that presumption, 
you've got to realize that for those laws to exist, which I think even most scientists today are going to say, well, there's a God factor in all this, which they do, at least by design, intelligent design movement. They're going to say there's some God involved in this. Great. Well, if that can happen, existence and consciousness and life, well, then I'm saying the intervention into time and space doesn't seem to be a real issue. A chromosome in Mary's womb doesn't seem to be that big of a deal when you're explaining to me quantum theory about a set of rules that no one has access to that created the conditions by which the universe evolved. If you wrote a book, I think you can write a sentence, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If I write a sentence for you, say there's no way you can write that sentence. You can't write that sentence. No one in this room can read or write. Well, I just wrote one. Well, you can't write one. Now, I know you wrote that book last year, but you can't write a sentence. And all I'm saying is that I think life and existence lead us to a very reasonable assertion that there is a God who created us. Even if you want to concede a lot of the means by which people will speculate that took place, which I don't, I'm going to say, well, then intervening into time and space is not a big deal. If you can create DNA, you can create a Y chromosome. That's all I'm trying to say. And I think your average Facebook friend is going to admit that. I prefer you not have the debate publicly on their page, but I think your phone call to them and discussion about reality can get them to that place. Well, yeah, you Christians are just a bunch of gullible people. And I frankly can admit there's a lot of bad stuff out there written about the miraculous. I can find a set of books, and here's the dangerous thing to look for books on miracles, because there's a set of books that I would certainly endorse and even venture and fancy to want to write about the miraculous of God doing everything I've just described. But everyone then says, well, you're the kind of guys that think there's, there's a miracle happening in every person's life every, every month or every day or every year. And, of course, that's not what I'm saying at all. Matter of fact, I would say the Bible assumes skepticism. It expects you to be skeptical. It expects you to understand that this is not what happens. That's why it says, never been a day like that before. And there's never, I mean, there hadn't been one since. Never one was before that. Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. If you've got a guy that's just wanting to echo and give voice to the miraculous superstitions of the day, you don't start your book by saying, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That's the kind of statement that comes from someone saying, now there's a lot of weird stuff that's been said about this Jesus of Nazareth, and even about him rising from the dead. I'm just going to tell you, let's, let's work through the cloud of claim and get down to what actually happened. John 14, 11, Jesus said, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me or else on account of the works themselves. There's a connection between what happens miraculously and what I'm claiming here. This is a supernatural, unique, rare event. The Bible assumes that kind of skepticism when you walk into any discussion about the miraculous. First John 1, 1, which was from the beginning. I think I quoted this a couple weeks ago. The things we've heard, things we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. He made manifest to us. That's the kind of statement of, listen, I know this is hard to believe. And I know these things that we're going to share that if, he's already shared in his long gospel, 21 chapters. He says, we're telling you what we, what we investigated. This is like a detective trying to prove a remarkable thing that took place at a crime scene. He's not just sitting back with his feet up on the desk saying, well, yeah, a lot of weird things happened here because I'm open to all of that. That's not the flavor or feel of the Bible. And again, I've already said this, but let me make it a point. Biblical miracles are rare. And let me add this, and they're purposeful. And let me even add this, with lasting revelatory purposes. That may be unnecessarily cumbersome, but miracles in the Bible are rare, and they have a purpose, and they have a lasting 
revelatory purpose. In other words, they work towards something that allows every generation to benefit from, and it's not wasted on a, and I shouldn't say wasted, but having Lazarus rise from the dead was wasted on a guy that's going to die 20 years later. Am I right? I mean, gives him 20 years or whatever it might be. But the lifespan of people wasn't very long, and you're telling me he was raised from the dead, and that's really great, but it would be one person benefiting and a few people in his family rejoicing and a handful of friends that celebrate, but in the end, they're all going to end up grieving around his grave anyway. And all I'm telling you is, that's not the way God does his miracles. The blind man's eyes in John 9 end up being blind again. But when God does a miraculous thing, he does it for a revelatory purpose. I've already given you the numbers, and they're a lot smaller than most people assume. And what happens out of this? An assertion of creation. What's left behind this is the Pentateuch, the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, through the prophets, the period of the prophets. The prophets end up getting written. And of course, the apostles and the Christ, they end up having the New Testament be written. And what we have now is an understanding of how we were made. We have the law, we have the prophets, and we have the New Testament. We've got a Bible in our hands. They have a purposeful, revelatory agenda. Biblical miracles are rare. As a matter of fact, think of it this way. The word miracle, it means, I mean, very specifically in Greek and even reminiscent in Hebrew, it means a sign. That's the point. Matter of fact, there are other words, parallel words that go with the word miracle that are usually combined with it. And they even extend that further. Sign. It's a sign. It's here. Go here. Look here. Do this. That's the point. Now, sometimes they don't listen to the sign, but they were a sign. Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. What does that infer? Well, that was the point. Was for you to believe in him. Why? So that you could get your, your life extended 20 years? No. So that if you believe in me, even if you die, yet shall you live. That was the point of Lazarus being raised from the dead. An expression of his power to take you beyond the grave into the next life and give you a resurrected body that doesn't die in 20 years or 200 or 2 million. Acts 2.22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, here's a good word, attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs. That's the picture. You need to put your trust in him. It's not Buddha. It's not Confucius. It's not Muhammad who would come later. It's Christ. He's the one. There's no, there's life in no one else. There's no salvation given, possible and available to you. There's no name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. It's a sign. Luke 16.31, sometimes they don't listen. They don't hear Moses and the prophets, which, by the way, were all surrounded by miraculous signs, the coming of those books. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The signs are pointing to the same thing. And the point is those signs from the beginning, creation, the law, the prophets, the New Testament, are for a purpose, a very specific purpose. They're rare, but they're purposeful. Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, we've dealt with a couple of times in the series, I think. How are we going to escape? In other words, don't neglect the gospel. Do what it says. Repent and trust in Christ. If you were to neglect it, it'd be like the Old Testament where they got punished for everything they did in response to the Old Testament law. How are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first declared by the Lord. It was attested to us. There's that word again by those who heard while God also bore witness. He pointed signs to it. Believe in this. Trust in this. By signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts by the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Biblical miracles are rare. Number three, the Bible would leave us with this expectation. God's going to keep the natural laws that he made. God's going to keep the natural order. And God is not going to suspend the natural order. That's not God's pattern. It's not his habit. 
If it were, there would, it would, they would not be miracles. We would live in a chaotic world. But of course, he expects the world to run on its rules. He's very rarely, less than 100 times, recorded and chronicled in Scripture, given us a suspension of that natural law. And he's telling us here, you ought to expect things to work the way they normally work. For instance, if you have some kind of ulcer or you've got some kind of stomach problem or if you've got some GI tract issue, well, apparently the elixir of the day was wine. I don't recommend that now. First Timothy 5.23, got stomach problems. There's better things than that. But he tells Timothy, don't drink water anymore. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The Bible expects for God to keep the laws that he made. At least the best technology and pharmacology of the day was to deal with some wine for your stomach. If you had a stomach issue, at least that was the conventional wisdom. And so Paul says, that's what you ought to do. It's not that you'd expect God to give you a new stomach lining this week. Treat the symptoms, manage, do your best. If anyone knew what suffering was like and thorns in the flesh that weren't going to be removed supernaturally by God, it was certainly the apostle Paul. Here's one of the natural laws that God made. By the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Here's the promise of God. Your body's going to wear out and it's going to die. So when he goes to Lazarus's grave and he pulls him out of the grave and makes everyone happy, what has he done? He suspended natural law. What should we expect? We should expect Lazarus to get sick and die. And that's exactly what he does. Never fun. It's not good. It's a bad thing. It's an enemy. And Christ was sent to reverse the effects of that enemy. But that's the promise of God. And that is what we should expect. We should expect God to keep the laws that he made. But God does ask us to ask him to direct the natural order. For instance, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the whole command of you exercising your volition on the earth is for you to direct the natural order, to take a channel of water, put a windmill on it, or a, a, not a windmill, what do they call it? A water wheel on it. Take the wind that's blowing, put a windmill up. Take the things of the earth and direct them and subdue them and exercise dominion. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Don't just let things happen in a natural way. Take the natural order and direct it. Direct it for good. Subdue it. Exercise your dominion over it. Now, here's the thing God wants us to do about everything, to pray clearly. And there are things that are going to happen in the natural world. And of course, we're going to intuitively respond to God by wanting things to be fixed. Like if your stomach is ailing you, Paul says to Timothy, I love you. I wish that your stomach wasn't hurting. So let's do this to try and direct the natural order. And I know that Paul was praying for Timothy. He said he was elsewhere, always remembering in his prayers. And I'm telling you, he's saying, when someone's sick among you, here's what you ought to do. You ought to recognize that oftentimes that illness is not just a natural order of things. It's a Hebrews chapter 12 disciplinary thing. And when it is, you ought to confess your sins to one another. You ought to pray for one another that you may be healed. And then he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah, then we get our example. A man with a nature like ours, he prayed. And within the natural order of things, and here was my example of the natural order expression, at least one of them, the expression of God's intervention through natural law, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and it did rain. So the prayers were given to us by invitation by God. Pray and ask me. And in this case, ask me to take the natural order of things and to direct them. And within the natural order of things, ask me to do things within that, particularly when there are things like this, a sin issue, a discipline issue. I want them to confess. I want it to change and then pray. And sometimes it's an issue of just God fulfilling his promise in Genesis 3 and people reaching the end of their, their lives, God fulfilling his promise. I want to ask for with right motives. 
I just throw that in because anytime I'm thinking about expectation regarding the natural order of things, people say, well, I want God to reverse the natural order. Why can't God take the natural order and change it for me? Because why? Because I want it. I just want to feel good. It's exactly what he warns us of. That should not be your sole motive for praying. He says in James 3, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here's the thing. You should expect pain. You should expect sickness. You'd expect death. Those are the things you ought to expect. When things happen, like illness, do I want to pray that people will be healed? Sure. Particularly if it's not something that is on the plan A, so to speak, of God, I certainly want to see God intervene and change this. Paul even said about the ones he loved, like Epaphroditus, I don't, I don't want him to die because I would just be, I would be so torn up about it. And I recognize the rightness of those kinds of prayers. But eventually he did die. There needs to be something more in God's agenda than just us asking for things to spend it on our passions. If God were answering those prayers, then you would see four or 500-year-old Christians, as I've often said. You'd have all these people doing their ministries in nursing homes and in ICU wings, but of course they don't. God is sovereign in every second of every day. So much of the expectation regarding God doing miracles, and by that I mean the suspension of natural law, is an assumption that things are running chaotically until God wakes you up to pray about something and then he's going to have you fix it by your prayers. Does God sometimes want us in those situations to see his intervention as part of his plan and I pray and that effectual prayer brings about the directing of the natural order? Well, of course. In my human experience, that's how it plays itself out. But to think that God was asleep at the wheel between those instances when something goes wrong and then it's fixed as though he weren't a part of that misunderstands everything about God's involvement, his involvement in his creation. And that's how we started the night. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And guess what? Sometimes those steps go up on the high road. Sometimes they go on the low road and sometimes they go into the ditch. And the Lord is involved in directing that, establishing that. Ephesians 1.11, obtain an inheritance from God, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. There's the point. It's about my election, my salvation, the sovereignty of God. But then it says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything is playing out according to the counsel of his will. He's not asleep at the will. There's nothing taking place that God is surprised by. Romans 8.28, if you're a Christian, you know this. He's got a good plan because of his special love that has been placed upon you, he's going to direct something for your and his, your good, his glory in the long run. Everything's going to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. God is in control of every second, every molecule, every cell in your body, even if some of those cells are cancerous. I'm going to pray for your healing. I would love to pray for that. I don't know all the elements, but I want to know, and I want to assure you, God is sovereign in every second, including the things that are going wrong in your body, which is not what the faith healers will preach to you. Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has done it? That's a rhetorical question, which clearly the rest of Amos makes very clear. Of course it doesn't. Bad things don't happen to a city if the Lord didn't, didn't do it. Put it in another way. Psalm 94, 7 through 9, the Lord, they say, does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Well, listen, that's dumb. The writer of Psalms says, understand, O dullest of the people, fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Of course he sees it. Of course he knows. Of course he hears it. He's not been asleep at the wheel. He's not like, you're not waking him up to go and, and get involved in the problem of your life. Though sometimes prayer is taught that way. Micah 6, 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom for you to fear his name. Hear of the rod of him who appointed it. Like so many of the prophets, this is all divinely decided. 
Does that mean that I can't pray like in James 5 that I know that the rod of the Assyrians or the rod of the Babylonians, I would like to get through this, have God, have the sins forgiven and the remedy come? I want all that. I understand that. But confess your sins and let's see God turn this around. But the rod itself is not a surprise or an accident as though God wasn't involved. Even the worst of what happens in our lives, we believe God is sovereign in every second. For Samuel 2, 6 and 7, Hannah says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Well, here's what most people on Twitter think. He brings to life, he raises up, he makes rich, and he exalts. I agree with all that. He also kills. He also brings people down to the grave. He also makes people poor and he also brings them low. God is sovereign in every second. First Samuel 2, 6 and 7. I just said that. Second Samuel 16. When Abishai, Abishai says to King David, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. King David said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? I don't know the plan of God in this. I got to be careful here of fighting something when I'm not sure whether God wants this to happen and whether I should even be praying about it in that direction or not. One of the things that ought to be a constant prayer of your prayer life is what should I be praying about? That's a key. It's a key thing. And even when we're just overwhelmed with passion or pain or intuitive crying out to have God fix a problem, you ought to pray like Jesus prayed. Father, if you're willing remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And if you say, well, I believe that God is doing these suspensions of natural law today, which I think would be on the front page of the paper. Am I saying he can? Of course not. My whole premise is that God can suspend and intervene in anything that he makes. But what's the point here? Is as though God doesn't find himself in a corner. Wow, the only way I'm going to fix this one is to break natural law. If you say, well, he's going to do it for my good. Well, he may do things for your good, and I get that. But when he suspends natural law, and literally puts things in a corner and then fixes them. He says he does it for the purposes that, as we see scattered throughout Scripture, is to affirm a lasting revelatory purpose or reason. And we benefit from that every day. Why? Because we want to live in this world because of heaven's on earth? No, because we're heading and preparing our soul and our lives for the next life. All right, a lot more to go in this series. Looking forward to moving on through it. Let's pray. God, help us to think through this carefully, to understand that the 15% that we're often struggling to prepare to lock horns with really is more rare than we think. It's, it's the 50%, the 49%. Usually it's a battle for the Bible when people are thinking about, is the Bible even reliable? Is this message even something historical? Is it presented as truth? Is it a book of, of Aesop's fables or some kind of mythology, Roman mythology? God, help us to be presenting to people the very clear teaching of the Bible, that the Bible not only is presented as true truth, but when those natural laws are suspended in the few times that they are, there's a clear purpose, one that is pointing to a, a response, a, a place to put our hope. It's a, it's a sign. It's a directive call to put our confidence in the right place, and particularly in our case, to take the word of God, the law, the prophets, the New Testament, and recognize that you have spoken and not have doubts about that. And as we saw last time, the prophetic word that clearly has the only unique and clear way that we could affirm that this book is not a human book. It's not man's best thoughts about God, but this is clearly your word because of the predictive prophecies. This is one reason 
that those miracles surrounded the coming of those prophetic words. So we can see here, point right here, here is God revealing himself to us. And what is he revealing? God, you've revealed to us that we got to prepare ourselves in this world that is laden with sin and corruption and sickness and disease and death, that you have a place for us where death is going to be removed, where pain and suffering are going to be extracted, where the payment of sin that we are suffering in part, even in our own mortality, is going to be reversed because you're going to bring that remedy through Christ to give us the immortality that he has to put on immortalities, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. So God, get us excited about sharing that message more often. I know we got through that first chapter of Acts on the weekend, and I just don't want that to cool. I want to be praying, and I want to be praying with others, and I want to be seeing our church reach out for those folks we've identified that we want to see come to Christ. Open our lips, and let us speak this message with increasing confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.